Hello there, good afternoon. Thank you so much for coming today. My name is Bernardo Rondo. I'm an associate curator and head of film programs for the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, which will be opening in 2019 at the corner of Wilshire and Fairfax. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> it is a tremendous honor to be here at the LA Phil with all of you today to speak about the work of Stanley Kubrick. Um, I'm going to be walking through Stanley Kubrick's filmography and paying closer attention to the films that are being dealt with this afternoon, um, as opposed to going in great depth with all of the films. Stanley Kubrick's body of work is decidedly his very own. And that's particularly notable given the fact that for the bulk of his career, he worked for major Hollywood studios. Living largely in self-imposed self exile outside of London, where he could make films at his own pace with a small group of collaborators, he only released 13 features over 46 years. Nearly all of them, in some way, look at the relationship between a system or structure of power and an alienated individual. Gilles Deleuze, the French philosopher, called Kubrick's work, quote, cinema of the brain. The world itself is a brain. The inside is psychology, the past. The outside is the cosmology of galaxies, the future, evolution, a whole supernatural outside, a whole supernatural which make the world explode. Kubrick was born in July 26, 1928 in the Bronx. He would have been 90 this year. At the age of 13, he received his first still camera. In 1945, he took a snapshot of a crestfallen news vendor beside headlines announcing the death of Franklin D. Roosevelt. It was the first photo he sold to Look Magazine. That's that photo right there. Look Magazine, a bi-weekly news magazine where, from October 1946 to August 1950, Kubrick served as a staff photographer. Here are some more of his images. You get a nice sense of the way he employs space, something that will recur in his motion pictures. And this is an image, for those of you familiar with The Shining, and you'll see a clip of it today if you're not, there is this famous use of these twin girls that a lot of people liken to a Diane Arbus photograph from the late 1960s. But in fact, Kubrick took an, equal, an eerily similar photograph of these two girls putting on uh, hearing aids in the late 1940s. Kubrick left the magazine at age 22 in order to adapt one of his photo essays into a short film. That's the image on the lower right there, an article called Prize Fighter. He turned that into a short film called The Day of the Fight from 1950 about middleweight boxer Walter Cartier. Subsequent short documentaries followed. The Flying Padre in 1951, about Father Fred Stadtmuller, who ministered his New Mexico parish by flying his airplane, The Spirit of St. Joseph. Kubrick also made a lesser-known industrial film entitled The Seafarers in 1953. It was, in fact, his first color film, and it was commissioned by the Atlantic and Gulf Coast District of the Seafarers International Union for the purposes of recruitment. Encouraged by Joseph Burston, a New York distributor and exhibitor who, side note, in 1951 won a Supreme Court case that for the first time enabled films to be protected under the First Amendment, Kubrick made his feature debut. 
The allegorical expressionistic war film Fear and Desire in, from 1955 was shot right here in the San Gabriel Mountains. That's the film here on the lower left hand. And right above that is the day of the fight. And you can see an echo of the day of the fight, uh, motion of the boxer looking in front of the mirror to his first feature film, Killer's Kiss. I mean, his first official killer's film, Killer's Kiss. Going back to Fear and Desire, that was a film that actually Kubrick himself long suppressed. He didn't want people to see it. He was quite embarrassed by it. And it was only restored and made available for viewing in the late 2010s. He returned to the streets of New York in the hurly-burly world of boxing for his official debut, 1955's Killer's Kiss. In 1958, he made his first studio picture, uh, the ice-cold heist noir, The Killing, starring Sterling Hayden, Colleen Gray, Elisha Cook, and Timothy Carey. Kubrick became a proper studio director with two back-to-back -back Kirk Douglas pictures. The World War I battlefront drama, Paths of Glory, from 1957. Also, Kubrick's first film made outside the US. It was shot largely in Munich, Germany. And the color cinemascope saga, Spartacus, from 1960. The first and last film where Kubrick acted as a hired gun. He was brought on after the film had already begun production, had no involvement in casting. He was only 30. The film wound up being nominated for six Academy Awards and won four of them. It was also the highest grossing release of the year. A pair of black comedies starring Peter Sellers paved the way for Kubrick as a bankable auteur. Lolita from 1962 was Kubrick's first film shot in England where he would eventually reside for the rest of his life. In the caustic Cold War satire, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb from 1964. Nominated for four Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, the film was released the same year as Mary Poppins, My Fair Lady, and The Pink Panther, among others. <laughs> so as you can see, his seventh film was a pivotal point, not just in his career, but in the history of cinema. What followed would revolutionize the medium. On March 31st, 1964, Stanley Kubrick posted a letter to science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke. In this letter, Kubrick expressed an interest in discussing, quote, the possibility of doing the proverbial really good science fiction movie. Over the subsequent four years, Kubrick, Clarke, and a host of collaborators would set out on the arduous, ta on the arduous task to not only make a really good science fiction movie, but one of cinema's most studied works. It could have been called How the Universe Was Won, Tunnel to the Stars, Journey Beyond the Stars, but eventually Clark and Kubrick settled on 2001, A Space Odyssey. There's much to be discussed about this pivotal film, but let's focus on how 2001 redefined the way Kubrick and subsequent filmmakers employed music on screen. Kubrick was setting out onto such uncharted terrain, trying to make a realistic and believable film about outer space at a time before any man had even set foot on the moon. The film took much longer than MGM had anticipated and cost five times its original budget. For a start, Kubrick began by writing the film as a novel with Clark and began shooting some footage, formless bursts of pigment for the film's climactic Stargate sequence. This is the imagery that you see right here. This footage was achieved by Kubrick in 1965, three years before the film was released in the Upper West Side of Manhattan by dripping noxious paint thinner into tanks of black ink while an overcranked 65-millimeter camera whirred away, meaning that the results, when projected at the proper speed, would have a stately slowness. 
Given the scale of 2001, a roadshow film after all, which means first, their first engagements would be played on large-scale 70-millimeter widescreen projection with then state-of-the-art six-track stereomagnetic sound in film palaces with an intermission and reserved seating for premium ticket prices, MGM insisted on Kubrick hiring a composer for the film score. Kubrick first hoped for Bernard Herrmann, whose illustrious credits also included such science fiction and fantasy films as The Day the Earth Stood Still and Journey to the Center of the Earth but Herman's fee proved too high. Kubrick eventually hired his Spartacus composer, Alex North, who you see right there. On November 1967, that's just five months prior to the film's April 1968 release. Only shown parts of 2001, most of it with Kubrick's temp music, we'll talk about temp music in a second, North wrote about 40 minutes worth of new material. When he asked Kubrick about seeing the entire picture, the director told North to not compose any more music because he was just going to use, quote, breathing infects for the rest of the film. North wouldn't see the completed film until its 1968 New York premiere. Not a note of his music was used. If you want to hear North's music, there is this album that came out uh, just about 10 years ago that's the closest to what would have been heard on screen. It's North's score as he recorded it in the late 1960s. So what's a temp track? A temp track is a set of musical cues sourced from pre-existing material and roughly synced up with picture. This is something that filmmakers will use if they want to show a composer what kind of music they're hoping to have for a film. But starting with 2001, Kubrick would redefine the use of the temp track. As the director himself would state, quote, I don't see any reason not to avail yourself of the great orchestral music of the past and present. And from 2001 onwards, this became the norm for Kubrick. There were no temp tracks. All the source music would end up in his films. 2001's opening Dawn of Man sequence was shot largely after the entirety of the film had already been completed, blending front-projected ectochrome photographic prints of African vistas with live action footage filmed on sound stages at MGM's Borehamwood's backlot outside London, the sequence is entirely devoid of dialogue or explanation. Two key pieces of music are used. Ligeti's Requiem, Kiri, was first heard by Kubrick's wife, Christiana Kubrick, on BBC Radio 3 while she was painting in her studio in 1967. She recommended this work to Kubrick, and he would go on to use four pieces by the Hungarian composer in 2001 and in subsequent films. A then brand new piece of music by Ligeti, Requiem is used in 2001 when the mysterious monolith appears on screen. In the novel, the object's first appearance is accompanied by a drumming sound, which is a bit of a tribal flourish. For the film, Ligeti's rising cacophonous mass of sound evokes the mesmerizing power of this enigmatic slab. Side note about the monolith. It was originally envisioned in the novel as a transparent pyramid. But after Kubrick's team met with plexiglass manufacturers, he was told that the only way they could build something the size they wanted, which was 12 feet tall, would be if they could make it, quote, the shape of a packet of cigarettes. The monolith became black after tests with the clear plexi disappointed Kubrick. He complained that it looked too much like a piece of glass. Kubrick's use of Richard Strauss's thunderous 1896 tone poem, also Sprach Zarathustra, in the film credited as The Spoke Zarathustra, is one of the most iconic and oft-copied audiovisual pairings in film history. 
The score's ascending intervals suggest an awakening, a realization, and its use in the film underlines the sentiment, whether it's a prehistoric ape's discovery of how to wield a bone as a weapon, or at the film's conclusion as humanity undergoes a cosmic rebirth. Another piece of 19th century orchestral music plays immediately following that sequence, and it's Johann Strauss's stately blue Danube waltz. And it plays as we cut forward several millennia, one of the most iconic match cuts in film history, past the Donna Man to the space age. An American scientist is traveling on a Pan Am shuttle to the gargantuan orbital space station five, which you see right here, en route to the moon, where a monolith much like the one seen in the Dawn of Man has been discovered below the lunar surface. This was actually also from an Arthur C. Clarke story from 1950 called The Sentinel that proved the germ for what became 2001. Kubrick had used another Strauss waltz, Kunstleben, in his 1957 film, Paths of Glory. Discussing his use of Blue Danube in 2001, Kubrick said it was, quote, hard to find anything better for depicting grace and beauty and turning. Space Station is constantly turning. It also gets as far away as you can get from the cliche of space music. One of the other Ligeti pieces used in the film is Atmospheres. Most memorably, it accompanies the 17-minute Stargate sequence. Kubrick was considering Mahler's Third Symphony and Vaughan Williams' Sinfonia Antarctica for the Stargate. The latter was actually even used during tests. The sequence represents the moment when the sole surviving astronaut of the Jupiter-bound Discovery mission encounters an alien force beyond the infinite. Much of the Stargate sequence was created by FX supervisor Douglas Trumbull using what was called a slit scan machine. A motion picture camera set with a time exposure where each frame is exposed for a full minute slowly moves toward a rig where colorful, backlit transparencies ripple and reel, visible only through a vertical slit. The resulting streaks caused on the negative are then combined with superimpositions such as stars in outer space and Ligeti's otherworldly swirl of sound to create a mind-bending journey through space and time. Given the amount of Ligeti's music used in the film, the composer himself was not flattered, but rather quite irate. Writing to a friend, he called the film, quote, some wonderful photographs, but as a story, a nonsense. As regards taste, totally tasteless. I have been compromised. And what you see here are Ligeti's notes from when he went to finally see the film, timing with a stopwatch how long each of his pieces appeared on screen. The long and short of the Ligeti-Kubrick dispute likely has to do with the fact that Ligeti was not contacted directly by either Kubrick or his publishers, and when he initially got wind of the film, he was told his compositions would be just, quote, background music. In fairness, his publishers were not obligated to clear the sync rights with him. Sync rights being the right to use a recording or a musical work with an audiovisual piece. But as we've seen, as, we'll see, as we've seen now and you'll see later, the extent to which uh, Ligeti's music is used in the film is quite significant. Consider, for example, that the alien chords of atmospheres are played for several minutes before any image even appears on screen. Ligeti and Kubrick make up and his music appears in future Kubrick films. After its poorly received Washington DC premiere, initial reviews dismissed 2001. But slowly, MGM discovered the work's growing popularity with the American counterculture and rebranded the film as such. As you can tell from this poster, quite different from the one we saw earlier. 
For example, straight-laced Village Voice film critic Andrew Saris famously wrote two reviews of the film. One, from 1968, was a pan. He called it a thoroughly uninteresting failure. But two years later, revisiting the film, quote, under the influence, <laughs> he hailed it as, quote, a major work by a major artist. <laughs> There are even anecdotes of MGM encouraging theaters to allow viewers in just to lay down and watch the Stargate sequence. If 2001 concludes on a sense of potential utopia, its follow-up 1971's A Clockwork Orange is pure dystopia. Sometime in the not-so-distant future, gangs of teenage thugs roam vacant city streets, terrorizing citizens in their own homes. Alex, the leader of a gang of droogs, spend their night committing horrific crimes for mere entertainment. Such crimes are repaid when Alex is caught and set about to be reformed by the government. As he had with Lolita, Kubrick once again adapted a contemporary work of fiction, in this case, Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange. But unlike Lolita, controversial source material led to an even more explosive film, one that Kubrick himself withheld from release in the UK after its initial opening for decades for fear of copycat gang violence. It's impossible to talk about Clockwork Orange without talking about Wendy Carlos, because Kubrick once again turned to classical music in this film, albeit in a different voice. Throughout Clockwork Orange, we hear synthesizer reinterpretations of classical music done by Wendy Carlos. Kubrick said, quote, Carlos is the only electronic composer who has managed to create a sound which is not an attempt of copying the instruments of the orchestra, and yet which, at the same time, achieves a beauty of its own, employing electronic tonalities. In fact, Carlos's Switched on Bach proved the first classical album to sell more than a million copies. There it is right there. Though, like North before her, Carlos had much music written for the film that ended up not being used at all. But a fair amount of it did, <laughs> as opposed to North. Throughout the film, the associations we have with specific compositions shift as they are presented in different contexts. In most cases, the pieces are played first to underscore Alex's dominance. Later, they echo his downfall. For example, music for the funeral of Queen Mary by the 17th century English composer Henry Purcell first plays in a Wendy Carlos adaptation over a slow, tense zoom out from Alex's unblinking face in the Corova milk bar. This is also the shot that opens the film. At first, it appears to imply the baronial grandeur of this petty thug. Later, as with other pieces, you hear it again as Alex has undergone, undergone the excruciating Ludovico treatment in which his eyelids are pinned open, forcing him to watch nasty bits of ultraviolence, as he says, on a cinema screen, beginning with World War II footage of Nazi rallies and bombings. A classical music-obsessed degenerate, Alex thrills to Beethoven, or, quote, Ludwig van, as he calls him, and in particular, the world-famous Symphony No. 9. Of the symphony's four movements, only two and four are used in the film. Again, its associations involve throughout the film, going from the soundtrack to Alex's violent fantasies to, me to the means of torturing him by his enemies. Both orchestral and synthesizer renditions with vocoder are used. For example, the second section is played by Alex on a mini cassette in his room, a moment of pleasure and privacy. Later in the film, after Alex has heard the piece during the Ludovico treatment, which you see there on the bottom, a synthesizer version booms in his locked cell as payback by one of his victims. Rossini's overture to the thieving magpie from 1817 is again a juxtaposition of elegantly jubilant music 
against acts of violence. First, you hear it as a gang fight, during a gang fight between Alex's droogs and his rivals, and second, when Alex breaks into a home and murders its sole resident. Kubrick generally refrained from anachronistic use of music with his 1975 costume drama, Barry Lyndon. Adapted from a novel by William Makepeace Thackeray about an Irish rogue cheating his way to the top of British society, the film employs period-appropriate music to heighten its mid-18th century realism. However, speaking of his use of Schubert's trio in E-flat, Opus 100, Kubrick said, quote, I think I must have listened to every LP you can buy of 18th century music. One of the problems which soon became apparent is that there are no tragic love themes in 18th century music. So eventually, I decided to use Schubert. It has just the right restrained balance between the tragic and the romantic without getting into the headier stuff of later romanticism. I should also add, Kubrick always preferred to cut picture to music as opposed to changing music to fit picture. For that, for this film in particular, for the first time, he employed an arranger in Leonard Rosenman to shape the music so that it would fit as much as possible what he needed on screen without changing it too much. And Rosenman's efforts actually won him an Academy Award. The realism and authenticity that Kubrick and his team were after also translated to the imagery on screen. They carefully studied paintings from the period and in some cases even seemed to stage compositions that echo them. For example, you have here um, Hogarth's, the mise-en-scene of Hogarth's Marriage a la Maude to the tête-à-tête from 1743 is evoked in a similar shot later in the film, particularly in the character's poses. And he would use the landscapes of Gainsborough and Constable, that's his Malvern Hall Warwickshire from 1809 on top, to see how they registered color and light. And the bottom, a shot from the film. Kubrick, in fact, applied space-age technology to his costume drama by fitting his 35-millimeter motion picture cameras with 50-millimeter f-stop 0.7 Zeiss still camera lenses, which had been left over from a batch that had been made by NASA for use in the Apollo moon landing program. So in other words, lenses used for very low-light situations. These super-fast lenses allowed for his interior scenes to be shot using only candlelight. Unfortunately, it doesn't really register in this bright room, but if you see it on a cinema screen, it's quite remarkable. Uh, and specifically, they were using 70 candle chandeliers and five candle or three candle table candelabras as the sole light sources in some of these sequences. Perhaps this is the most revolutionary intervention Kubrick used to enhance the authenticity of this masterpiece. Kubrick made a shocking return to the present day with 1980's The Shining, freely adapting Stephen King's novel about Jack Torrance, a frustrated writer who takes a job with his family as the winter caretakers of the ominous mountain-locked Overlook Hotel, Kubrick once again used the sublimely bleak sounds of modernism. You hear Bartok's piece as it accompanies the wanderings of Jack's wife and son through the hedge maze outside the hotel. And it also accompanies his son Danny's tricycle meanders through the endless corridors of the hotel specifically accentuating his encounter with the fateful room 237. Regarding the interior of the hotel, Kubrick has spoken at length about telling a story of the supernatural in a way far from fantastical. Quote, the hotel's labyrinthine layout and huge rooms, I believed, would alone provide an eerie enough atmosphere. 
This realistic approach was also followed in the lighting, and in every aspect of the decor, it seemed to me that the perfect guide for this approach could be found in Kafka's writing style. His stories are fantastic and allegorical, but his writing is simple and straightforward, almost journalistic. Multiple pieces by the living Polish composer Penderecki appear in The Shining, sometimes even overlapping. All of them intensify scenes of Jack's violent breakdown and the terrifying hallucinations which the Overlook, casts, Overlook Hotel casts onto its inhabitants. Perhaps most famously, the sequence in which waves of blood gush out from one of the hotel's elevators. Also, believe it or not, the film's trailer is that sequence. And there it is on the bottom. As with all of his meticulously researched and executed films, Kubrick built the interior of the Overlook in sound stages outside London. Exteriors were shot by a second unit with Oregon's Timberline Lodge standing in for the hotel in the Colorado Rockies. Two major cinematic interventions used by Kubrick deepen the unsettling mood of his only horror film. Always keen on having a freely moving camera, Kubrick was thrilled when Philadelphian Garrett Brown introduced prototypes of a Steadicam, a relatively lightweight contraption that is worn by a camera person and allows for smooth mobile cinematography. This meant powerful film lights had to be integrated into the sets themselves in real light fixtures, seemingly disappearing into the architecture of the Overlook. Now a staple of contemporary cinema and television, the Steadicam accentuates the entrancing eeriness of the hotel and its interminable corridors and imposing maze, also the scene of the film's climactic chase. And you can see here just a juxtaposition of what a simple shot of Jack Nicholson walking upstairs, how much equipment and people is needed, are needed to produce that versus a similar sequence following somebody, which is just Garrett and his Steadicam outside. Also worth noting in The Shining is the strange way that it employs dissolves. They are really quite long and slow, with two shots, the one about to conclude and the one about to begin visibly overlapping. The dissolves give the figures and spaces on screen a ghostly effect, perhaps stressing the spectral nature of the realm in which they, that they inhabit. Kubrick's 13th and final feature film in many ways feels like a summation of an extraordinary career. Based on the novella Traum Novella by Arthur Schnitzler, translated as Dream Novella, it's a work that Kubrick optioned back in 1968, shortly after the release of 2001. In the film, Kubrick transposes a story of 1920s Viennese decadence to late 90s New York City. Life and death, dream and reality intertwine in a film that, as with many Kubrick works before it, felt out of time upon its initial release in the summer of 1999. Yes, Eyes Wide Shut was a summer film. As with 1987's Vietnam War drama Full Metal Jacket, the film that came after The Shining before Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick actually employed a composer to write original music for Eyes Wide Shut. The British composer Jocelyn Pook created several pieces for the film, and her work is integral to the dreamy atmosphere. But tonight, this afternoon, we'll discuss two pieces of sourced music that Kubrick uses. Kubrick loved waltzes, and his last one came by way of Shostakovich and Suite for Variety Orchestra. The theme of the film, it actually appears not terribly often in this nearly two and a half hour feature, but it is used in telling spots, such as the opening and closing credits in scenes that depict the everyday normal lives of the lead couple, Dr. Bill Hartford, played by Tom Cruise, and his wife Alice, played by Nicole Kidman.
Much of the film is actually a bizarre series of nocturnes and encounters as Dr. Hartford, feeling betrayed by his wife's fantasies of infidelity, finds himself embroiled in a strange, seemingly cutthroat underworld, beginning with a visit to an imposing manor in the hinterlands where he attempts to assume an anonymous persona among a menacing sect of hooded masked figures. Ligeti's piece appears throughout the film and signals moments of unease and quiet panic, beginning with this moment when Dr. Hartford is unmasked among the cloaked masses. A side note, in this afternoon's program, there will be only one actor who will recur in two different Kubrick films, which is an extremely rare feat. Leon Vitali plays Barry Lyndon's displeased stepson, Lord Bullington, appears many years later as the ringleader of this mystery cult. That's him in red sitting in the chair for Eyes Wide Shut. Vitali was also Kubrick's assistant for many, many years. A homecoming of sorts, Eyes Wide Shut was also Kubrick's first film set in his native Manhattan since this film, Killer's Kiss, over 40 years earlier. Albeit in typical Kubrick manner, Eyes Wide Shut's Manhattan was a complete fabrication. Built on sound stages and backlots outside of London, in some cases using rear projection to stand in for the city when you have characters walking. The film's production lasted 400 continuous days, the longest on record. On March 7, 1999, less than a week after Kubrick had showed his cut of the film to Warner Brothers, he passed away. He was 70 years old. Eyes Wide Shut hit theaters four months later and landed atop the US box office. It was Kubrick's first and only film to open at number one. If you want to read some more about the use of music in Kubrick's film, I recommend this book by Christine Lee Gangara, Listening to Stanley Kubrick. And uh, thank you so much for listening. My name is Bernardo Rondeau from the Academy Museum. I hope to see all, you, all of you in 2019 and enjoy the show.